3: She was extremely powerful, feared, respected. She had a great empire of land and estates in the Midlands and the West Country. She was a businesswoman, she was a money lender, and she was also a builder. And that's actually what interested me in particular was the fact that she built.
4: That was Kate Hubbard describing one of the most powerful women of the Tudor age, Bess of Hardwick.
0: listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, we'll be discovering the story of Bess of Hardwick, a woman who rose from relative obscurity to become one of the most influential figures of the Elizabethan age. Bess's life has been chronicled in a new biography by the author Kate Hubbard and she spoke to our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning.
5: So I'm in our London offices with Kate Hubbard to talk about her new book, Devices and Desires, Bess of Hardwick and the Building of Elizabethan England. So welcome, Kate, to the History Extra podcast. It's Thank you. Great to have you. Um, so to to start, could you perhaps tell us a bit about Bess of Hardwick? Who was she and why did you want to write a book about her?
3: Well, Bess of Hardwick was uh, was a Tudor woman born in 1521 or thereabouts. Living eighty seven years, she died in sixteen oh eight, so she had an extremely long life at the time. And she came from relatively humble beginnings in Derbyshire. She was born into a, a gentry family. She didn't have much in the way of education. And but she forged a path sort of through Elizabethan England, partly um via four husbands, each one um Grander and richer than the last, and so she ended up when she died in sixteen o eight. She was a she was a countess. She was the dowager countess of Shrewsbury, and she was immensely rich, second only to the to the queen, second richest woman in England. To the, next to the queen, she was extremely. Um, she was powerful, feared, respected. She had a great empire of land, and estates in the Midlands and the West Country. She was a businesswoman she was a money lender, and she was also a builder. And that's actually what interested me in particular, was the fact that she built four houses, of which only one Hardwick Hall is still standing. But I was interested in the fact that she was a woman building in, in 16th century England.
5: Was this particularly unusual to have a female builder, or were other women of you know who were... Higher up the social scale, were they doing this similar kind of thing to Beth?
3: No, I think she really was for the time. I think it was a great it was a great era of building in in Tudor England. I mean, if you it was a, it was a time when there were there was money to be made. People made fortunes. Members of the gentry became extremely rich through the dissolution and passed into the ranks of the aristocracy. And if you had money, if you made money, you built a house. That was a sort of visible expression of your wealth. But all the other builders, they were men. I mean, there were no other female builders. At that time, so she was she was unique in in that respect in being a woman builder. Mm-hmm.
5: So you mention in the book that your interest in Bess began with her surviving house, so Hardwick Hall. Yes. So can you tell me perhaps when you, you first visited Hardwick Hall and where your interest in Bess and this building sort of began? Well, I think I
3: probably visited Hardwick Hall about ten years ago. It's um, if you if you're driving along the M1, you see Hardwick Hall sort of sitting up um, above, looking down onto the M1. So I, you sort of know you can't really miss it. And and I anyway when I visited it, I was very um, struck by it, and particularly by the fact that the most noticeable feature, apart from its enormous windows for which it's famous, but the fact that all along the the parapet of the house are these are these enormous letters es Bess's initials and that seemed rather extraordinary that you would build a house and then sort of plaster your initials all over it on the outside and actually all over the inside as well in in where um, es's are carved into into the plaster work and embroidered on textiles and 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 then when i also discovered that in fact she'd started work on hardwick when she was nearly 70 so she was She was relative. She was elderly, and she already had several houses. She sort of didn't need a house, and it just it seemed at a time when she you might have been sort of winding down. She sort of did the opposite. She built this house, which was the sort of house she'd always I think she'd always wanted to build, and it was very much about her. It was a very it's a very personal house. It's a sort of celebration of of self. I think of her of her progress and her triumph.
5: Well as you say as well, she scribbled her name effectively all over yes. it. You can see her initials yes. in in the parapets in the in the walls and things. Yes. Is the architecture of Hardwick is it remarkable anyway for its time?
3: Well, I think she there were certain things I think Bess liked in buildings and one of them was was light. She she liked I think she liked light, she liked big windows. And but, but glass was also a a great a, a great feature of Elizabethan of prodigy houses and lantern houses they were called houses that were had these huge windows. And because it was glass was was expensive, it was a it was a status, it was a status thing. And so if you could afford to have big windows, you know, you you did. And and Hardwick there were other houses that had enormous windows like um Leicester's Kenilworth in in, in um Leicestershire. But but Hardwick I think had Probably bigger windows than anyone else, and you know the Tudor builders were competitive they wanted to build a sort of bigger, better, more astonishing house and so I think she liked i think she was interested she liked light I think she liked height all her houses were were tall houses with with um the rooms as 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 the stories rose, the ceilings grew higher so the the rooms on the on the top floor of her houses the state rooms which were for entertaining, had these enormous ceilings which were extremely impractical you know extremely cold but but very spectacular and you would sort of walk up through the house and you'd emerge on the top floor in these gigantic sort of cathedral-like rooms and but I think Hardwick is in many ways quite a it's oddly modern I think if you look at it it's a sort of it's 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 kind of it's it's got a rather so simple but very ingenious design and she employed for Hardwick she employed the services of Robert Smithson who was an architect, or at least the sort of nearest thing Tudor England had to an architect, and he had designed several other houses. Um, like he'd worked on Longleat, he'd designed Woolerton in Nottingham, he'd designed a great house called Worksop, which was belonged to Bess's fourth husband, the Earl of Shrewsbury. And Bess knew about him, and and she she clearly wanted she she wanted to sort of build an architecturally perfect house, and so she sort of knew that. She sort of needed a designer, she needed someone to draw up a plan. So she she employed Smithson to do that. And so the sort of the sort of ingeniousness of the design of Hardwick, the way the kind of towers are kind of grafted onto the house, and I think is 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 largely due to him. But she also had quite an input in the design of the house and changed it as it was during the seven years it was built. Various changes were made to the original design, which were probably Partly instigated, or certainly approved by Bess.
5: So we, you've mentioned already that she amassed this great wealth over the course of her life. Um, it's not she's not got exactly got a rags to riches tale, but she definitely started from humble beginnings. Yes, um, and well, she ended up the dowager countess. Um, how much of her rise was down to her as a person, and how much was she a shrewd businesswoman? Is what I'm asking, or is she just yes. found herself in a fortunate place? <laughs> no,
3: I think she was a very, I think she was a very sort of canny businesswoman, and she, she certainly, her wealth partly came from her marriages, in that every time her hu- husbands all they all died, and which is why she kept on marrying. But in Tudor England. On the death of, as a widow, you inherited one third of your husband's wealth or the income from one third of his estates. So for your lifetime, so she had these inheritances, which gave her a kind of core of money on which to which to use. And but but I think the point is about Bessie. She didn't simply marry well and and therefore became become rich she used the sort of assets and the money that her husband's brought her and she built on them so she she inherited she had money that that came via her husband's but then she used that money to to buy more more land lots you know properties and she used it to sort of invest in in businesses like uh, coal mines and lead mines, and so she sort of used what she what she inherited and built on it. Mm-hmm. So I think she and she she was and she became she she had a very sort of lucrative sideline in lending money. A lot of you know a lot of Tudors' cash was in short supply, and Bess had. Had large amounts of cash, which she was happy to to lend on the security of land and so when people her the borrower whoever was borrowing money they they didn't repay their loans, then the land would come to her, so she sort of kept increasing her estates that was one another way she kept amassing more land was was through creditors who failed her. To repay their loans.
5: I know that we can't know exactly what her personality was like, but was she harsh at all? <laughs> <Was> she, <laughs> I think what about she someone was, who hadn't paid their debts?
3: Well, she was tough. I think she was, you know, she was definitely she was she was tough and ambitious. She she didn't sort of, you know, she she wasn't um she wasn't, I think, she wasn't very sympathetic necessarily. She was quite hard on her children. She certainly didn't you know if you didn't repay your debts that there was i don't think you were given much sort of leeway mm-hmm. and so I think she was she was you know she could be affectionate and she was rather sentimental, but I think primarily i think she was she was
5: she was ambitious and and tough and she was a force and determined you've mentioned already that well women in the sixteenth century had few opportunities to improve their position except through marriage, which mm-hmm. is how best you know the foundations of her Money were built on her marriages, Um she married four times. Perhaps you could take us through each of these relationships for our listeners who perhaps don't know, starting right at the beginning with her yes. first marriage, <laughs> just to give a bit yes. of a narrative.
3: Sure. Well, her first marriage was to just to, to, was to a Derbyshire boy called Robert Barley, who was younger than her. Um, she was about twenty-one; he was probably only about thirteen or fourteen, and it was very short-lived. He died after I think only about a year of marriage, and it was probably unconsummated because of his age. Mm-hmm. So it was, no one knows that for sure. So that was a, a brief marriage, which nevertheless, she left her with a small, she had her widow's jointure, which was only about £26, pounds, but it was something. It gave her a small amount of money. And her next husband, who was, who was key, was William Cavendish, who she met probably through the Marquess of Dorset, And his wife, Frances Gray. And William Cavendish had was also like best from the gentry, but he through the dissolution had he was a commissioner during the dissolution and he'd accrued a lot of land and money through that. So he was a rich man and he was also, he had a court position, so he was at court. So she William Cavendish took her took sort of Bess out of Derbyshire and took her to London and to court where she met various course, yeah. she courtiers became
5: and um, in Elizabeth the first court. Of, yes, yeah. so she
3: so she she knew the she she you know she um, met the queen and was on sort of you know friendly cordial terms, um, and th- with William Cavendish she. They bought Chatsworth together, which was in Derbyshire, which was almost certainly at Bess's instigation, because William Cavendish had no links to Derbyshire himself. They had six children, and then he died, and which was, if William Cavendish was probably the husband she loved, if she loved any of her husbands. So he died, leaving her with with six young children, and she then married someone called William St. Low, who was also a courtier and was also rich and he had great estates in the West Country. And he was extremely doting, And but she was, I think, rather less enamoured. Um, and he spent a lot of time at court, um, at Queen Elizabeth's court. Bess actually spent most of her time in Derbyshire building Chatsworth, the Elizabethan Chatsworth. And William St Lowe also died, and quite suddenly... And they're very suspicious. All these. Well, days. <laughs> it does sound suspicious, but I think actually there was it was not there was I think it was they're all yeah, natural causes. But um, and then her fourth and final husband was the grandest of all, and that was George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, who was a, a sort of Midlands tycoon, and who was um, richer than any of them, and he had he- vast vast amounts of land throughout the Midlands. And a lot of um, iron works and 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 lead mines and and so he was a sort of he was he was he was also one of the earls. He was one of the kind of England's premier earls. Mm-hmm. So that was and that's then she became Countess of Shrewsbury. So that was that was her grandest marriage, but it was also a marriage that sort of broke down in, in a great deal of rancour and, and bitterness in the end.
5: Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that Bess ended up at court. So I think this was at the age of thirty-one. Was it through her third husband or a second husband?
3: Well, through William Cavendish, she spent she, yes. she spent time at court because because he had a court position. So she she didn't wasn't living at court, but she mm-hmm. was in London. She would definitely have she would attended been in those court and. Yeah. And they made um, Prince. Well, as she was then, Princess Elizabeth, later Queen Elizabeth, was godmother to um, one of their sons. So they were, you know, they they were on some friendly terms with the Queen.
5: Well, this is what I wanted to ask you mm. about her relationship with Elizabeth I. Was it was it always friendly, or were there tensions? Um, Elizabeth I, obviously being a very, um, what's the word? <laughs> <laughs> strong-willed. Yes, well they were both Yeah, they were too strong-willed,
3: but they had some similarities and also many differences and I think they were on fairly, fairly friendly terms, I mean as far as the Queen, I mean she was a Queen she didn't Mm. really have friends, but they were on some good terms most of the time Um, Bess was very good about about things like uh, giving, present giving, she was the Tudors gave presents at New Year, not at Christmas and the Queen, it was important. Your gift to the your New Year's gift to the Queen was, was it was was kind of important. It had to be given, you know, thought had to be um trouble had to be taken. And particularly she was very keen on being given sort of gifts of clothing, really, you know, serious fancy frocks. Clothes, yeah. Yes. So Bess, you know, would would kind of present her with these very finely embroidered um Dresses and and cloaks and such things. So they were on they were on fairly good terms. They 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 were on rather less good terms when a bit later on Bess had um hope had hopes that her granddaughter who was called mm. Arbella Stuart, who had who had royal blood. So she there was no Elizabeth didn't have an heir. So there was a constant sort of uncertainty and speculation about who would be the next the next monarch, and Bess's granddaughter. Had a claim, and Bess, I think, certainly hoped for some time that Arbella might, in fact, become queen. And but this was not something that Queen Elizabeth was was favoured in any way, and no. and would, didn't was not willing to countenance. And so, I think Bess's sort of ambitions for her granddaughter
5: definitely caused a bit of strain. Do we have evidence of the this sort of ambitions she had? Did she want her daughter, her granddaughter, to? succeed the throne.
3: I think she did. I mean, she was a schemer. And it's, you know, it's it's hard to know from uh, you know, all yeah. the so <laughs> yeah, many yeah, the evidence. So, yeah, the evidence for it. But um she she did and she wrote letters and she she was she had she had engineered the the marriage between um Arabella's mother who was her youngest daughter Elizabeth mm-hmm. as she her second youngest daughter and 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 um and and the man she married, uh, Charles Stuart, and that was definitely Bess's doing, and and it was a way of she she was she was trying to marry her daughter to somebody who had royal blood.
5: Mm-hmm. And, she had those ambitions. Yes, yeah. and
3: she did that without getting royal permission, so that caused oh, Elizabeth yes. would
5: not happy. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, so. I also wanted to ask about her relationship with Mary, Queen of Scots, because I think when she was married to George Talbot, yes. Earl of Shrewsbury, yes. um, and he was one of the richest and he was a very wealthy and powerful man, yes. um, and he was appointed keeper of Mary, Queen of Scots. What can you tell us about Bess's relationship with Mary? How... Closely would they have come into contact with each other?
3: Well, they—I mean, quite close contact because because the Earl of Shrewsby, um was was effectively Mary's jailer, which meant that he kept Mary in his, he shunted Mary about f- from house to house. He had various properties, large houses in the Midlands, which it, which was partly why he was chosen as her jailer because the Midlands was thought to be secure. It was a long way from London. It wasn't near any mm-hmm. ports and or too near Scotland, and so. Mary was was living with the Shrewsbury's, I mean, for 15 years. And in the early days, Bess saw quite a lot of Mary because they were under the same roof and they spent quite a lot of time doing embroidery together, which was one of Mary's great loves and also one of Bess's kind of... um, also, they shared a love for mm-hmm. embroidery. Mary was a very was a very so fine um, needlewoman, so they definitely spent in early on um, a lot of time sitting, gossiping, and embroidering. But then Bess, I think, became increasingly fed up with Mary, and spent less and less. She would just take herself off to another house, and leaving leaving um, Mary and, and and Shrewsbury, and she also then had was had. She sort of fell out with mary because she had bess had her own ambitions for for um for her granddaughter and mm-hmm. and that caused tensions and it ended up they actually they 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 were they was they were certainly they were not on good terms at all and they both actually tried to sort of make trouble for each other and and Mary um wrote letters kind of trying to sort of um to fame bess and so they and there were there were rumors that that Shrewsbury actually had had an affair with Mary, mm. that she was his mistress, that they'd even had a child, which...
5: Was this a rumour that Bess started? Possibly. Possibly. I mean, that
3: was one of those... He, Showsby blamed Bess and, and her and her sons for these rumours, and Bess, they denied it. It's impossible to really know where their rumours came yeah. from, or even if there was anything behind them. There may well... There probably wasn't, but, <laughs> but you know, Bess may well have been jealous of Mary. When Mary was younger. And she was extremely, she was famously attractive and mm-hmm. and charming. And she was very good at sort of winning people over and winning sympathy. And, and, and the Shrewsbury, the servants, Bess and Shrewsbury servants were, Mary was frequently kind of conscripting the servants and, and persuading them to carry secret messages and letters for her. So she was obviously, she was good at, she was she was manipulative. So there was this sort of rather manipulative, very attractive woman who was in, who was the sort of third person in the marriage, really. And and so it was sort of inevitably, it, it, it it did cause trouble.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
5: And if we just go back to the talking about Bess and her building. <laughs> yes. Where do you think Bess's passion for these lavish building projects came from? What? What? Why do you think she was interested in, in developing properties?
3: Well, it's very hard. You know, it's really hard to know that. I mean, I think it was partly, I think it was partly ambition and, and competitiveness. She wanted, you know, she saw these great houses going up like Longleat or and burley house holdenby which was house in northamptonshire i think she wanted to kind of she wanted to make her mark she wanted to leave something Mm. a sort of you know a sort of legacy in 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 stone i think i think she genuinely actually was interested in 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 architecture and 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 the actual the process of building i did she didn't need to build four houses Not I mean yet. she had plenty of houses and and Shrewsbury had plenty of houses, so between them they you know she was she was very well housed so i think she i think she had she wasn't especially cultured, but she certainly wasn't she didn't have a sort of she hadn't been educated um sort of culturally, but I think she had a aesthetic interest, and i think she so she was interested in how things looked and she was interested in the furnishing of her houses and she took a lot of trouble commissioning um textiles and so on and buying furnishings and so i think it was partly just she was just building the spirit of the times because and she was keeping up with the with with the other you know they they were they were male but sort of other do you think that powerful might have been a part male of it? She around her and was like these, these I think powerful so. male yes, figures? I think doing she this. thought, I can do this too, and I'm yeah. going to, you know, I can sort of I can play this game too and I can build a kind of bigger, better or more <laughs> in, you know, extraordinary house.
5: Did the houses she was involved with shape our architectural history? Did did they have a legacy? Um were can you find examples of things she did in her buildings that have carried on through the centuries at all? Well,
3: I think you can. I mean, in in some ways, I think actually Hardwick has, it's not the sort of the the tall towers with the windows, there's something almost a bit, they're sort of like, they're almost like mini skyscrapers. Quite a modern house, I think, in lots of ways. And there's definitely, architects have taken inspiration from Hardwick, like the the designers of the Walsall Art Gallery, who are called Caruso St. John, um, they were inspired by Hardwick, and they were they the way they're inspired by Hardwick is they they have the Walsall Art Gallery has the, the, the room with the higher ceiling is on the top floor. So you sort of wind your way through the gallery in the same way that you wind yourself your way through Hardwick up these sort of winding stone stairs, and then you emerge into this great room with you know, very high ceilings, much higher than the the stories below. So I think it has been, I think it has inspired and does inspire mm-hmm. architects.
5: And just as we're nearing the end, I was wondering if you could tell, so if our listeners want to go and see some of the places that Bess was involved with building, obviously Hardwick's the only completely remaining Yes. Once. So Chatsworth was torn, torn down and rebuilt, was it? Chatsworth,
3: yes. yes. In the 17th century, Chatsworth um, was, was pulled down. Mm-hmm. But so that's completely vanished. And is vanished. there
5: no, can you see no touch of Bess's work there anymore at all?
3: Not really. I mean, you except in the way that the sort of actual configuration of the house, it's built on exactly the same site. It's roughly, I think, roughly the same size big yeah. um and it also actually in in the sort of the way the interiors are configured and with actually this the the high ceilings being on the upper floors so there are sort of traces there are mm-hmm. some sort of traces of the elizabethan house um though i think the cellars are still there but and there's one little there's a turret in the in the grounds called the hunting tower which was from bess's day and but there's there's little that's that's there's there's little that's left i mean at hardwick there's the new hall and there's also the old hall yeah which is next door to the new hall and is now a ruin i mean so she built the old hall before she built the new hall so she sort of effectively she built two houses right next door to each other and the old hall was enormous so she didn't but it was architecturally a bit of a bit of a it was confused and so incoherent and and not not satisfactory
5: do you think this is why she built the second? Yes. So she I always think, had her first draft. <laughs> exactly. It was a sort
3: of rehearsal. And and it was, you know, it was had very two sets of very grand state rooms and it was certainly sort of big enough for her, but it wasn't the house she really wanted. It was it was sort of imperfect house. So I think she sort of put that aside and and then she built the new one and that was the house that was the house that she'd sort of always wanted to, to build. And so so that so the old hall is is yeah, you can visit it, but it's not it's you can get a sense of, of how it was, but it's it's a ruin today.
5: So for people who are gonna visit Hardwick, what should they be looking out for, in your opinion? What what should they take note of?
3: Well, I think they should take note of the of the way you The way you're led through the house, and the way that you, the kind of the drama of the of the state rooms, the long gallery, and the high great chamber, the high great chamber has this sort of extraordinary plasterwork frieze showing sort of forest scenes because of painted plasterwork, and it's a completely sort of astonishing room. And it's also, I mean, Hardwick has almost, I think, the best collection of of sort of sixteenth century textiles and embroideries which are all still there and mostly well not all on display but a lot of them are on display and some of them are are, you know hardly even faded from from Bess's day and they're things that she either bought or or worked on herself with her with her ladies and so there's a you know very fine collection of textiles but the house itself is it's got sort of great sort of drama and, and romance to it.
5: And one final question, actually, I was going to ask you about just how do you build? How you build a house in Tudor England? <laughs> <laughs> this is a huge question, but obviously today we'd have planning permission, we'd have architects, we'd have all this. What was the the what happened in sorry Elizabethan England? How do you go about building a house? Well, <laughs> obviously you didn't need planning permission, no, but you 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 might have got a plan some
3: kind of basic plan and as as best did for Hardwick although architects didn't really exist in 16th century England there were definitely people who could draw plans usually they were masons who who could who could produce architectural drawings so ideally i think you would you you would have had you would have got some sort of plan and then you would have um set about sort of assembling your materials and for Bess that was relatively easy because she had because she had land and estates and she could provide most of her materials herself all the stone she had quarries all the timber she had lead so she could have lead for the for the windows she had her own glassworks which produced glass but the sort of the key i think the key thing for 16th century houses was was having good craftsmen and the right craftsmen and Although it was quite easy to find labourers to just do the hard labor, they could just be employed locally. Finding really skilled craftsmen, especially plasterers and masons, was was harder because they were they were in short supply and and they were sort of in demand and you know great patrons would, would sort of fight over the over the best craftsmen. So by the time Bess built Hardwick, she was quite an experienced builder. And so she she'd come across craftsmen drawing her. During her sort of years of building so she then made sure she had a sort of good team of people and who off, you know would stay for i mean hardwick was took about seven years to build so they craftsmen would, would stay and 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 of sometimes the best the most skilled would be given a house or a room mm-hmm. and you know lodging and would be sort of permanently employed um but really i think 16th century houses they were sort of a they were a collaboration on the whole between the patron and the craftsman and some as well, and as well as perhaps someone who'd who drawn up at a kind of original plan, but the architect, if that's not even quite the right term, but the draw up of the plan wouldn't necessarily have been involved in the actual building of the house. so that was really down to the the, the patron and the craftsman between them they would they would kind of direct
5: yeah and, a collaborative thing. yes, it was collaborative. Great. Um, well, I think that's probably all we've got time for today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you.
4: That was Kate Hubbard. Devices and Desires, Best of Hardwick and the Building of Elizabethan England is out now in the UK, published by Chateau and Windus. And in the US, it's due out in February, published by Harper. And you can read a review of the book in the January 19 issue of BBC History magazine, which goes on sale on the 27th of December. Meanwhile, you might also be interested in our special edition, The Story of Medicine, which has just been reprinted following popular demand. It will be available in several retailers and can also be ordered directly from us via buysubscriptions.com forward slash medicine 2018. And that is about all for this episode, but we will return on Monday with our annual Christmas history quiz.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.